I'm Art Miller. This is Art Class, and it's about to begin. Please take your seats. You're listening to the North Shore Podcast. Welcome to the North Shore Podcast, a podcast about the lovely cities of the North Shore, featuring topics like local news, sports, music, people, food, and history. My name is Pete, and I'm joined by my co-host, North Shore history legend, Arthur Miller. We all live in the North Shore. Before we start our class, we have a sponsor for the show, Dakota Insurance Group. They've got your back. Why? Because that's what friends are for. Dakota Insurance handles all your residential and commercial insurance needs. Get a quote now at dakotainsurancegroup.com. Okay, one of the goals of the podcast is for listeners to learn just a little bit more about the North Shore. Well, who better to teach us about North Shore history than Lake Forest and North Shore history legend Arthur Miller? Okay, everyone, take your seats. This could be a spooky show. Fold your hands, put them on top of the desk. Our class is about to begin. Art, how you been? I'm just fine, thank you. How are you? I'm a little nervous. I feel a little scared. Why do I feel that way, Art? (laughs) Well, because this program is going to deal with um, a topic that's kind of seasonal, but it's um, the ghosts and hauntings of Lake Forest. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, this is a topic that have come at from different angles over the years. Um, you know, I would go in from the seventies and the eighties and on. I would go into older Lake Forest houses and help them sort through their old books take some back to the college, things like that. When people were moving or going into a retirement home, uh, that sort of thing. So I heard lots of stories about the local community. Um, Being specific about some of the houses and some of the the ghosts Mm -hmm. doesn't really match up with the, the sort of realtor's image of Lake Forest, you know? So you tell. I'm discouraged from being too frank about particular addresses, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I can talk about some of the types of ghosts that have been run into locally, okay. and people who are pretty convinced that they've seen them, not mentioning their names, but talking about the situations. Okay. And, um, then also, I used to actually give. Um, in the earlier 2000s, I gave uh, ghost and haunted tours of the campus. Um, also, for a few years, the college brought a sort of paranormal guy, you know, to campus who sort of had a gizmo that he tried to, to and he'd get huge audiences of students who would come and he would try to <laughs> summon up some of these um spirits and what you know on campus and it was it was pretty successful um and so i guess i'll if it's okay i'll start out a little bit with some historic background about the paranormal okay Um, lots of people know the story of the headless horseman uh, washington irving's story that later became part of a walt disney cartoon and about you know, just the, the idea of a supernatural, maybe scary figure this time of year. When that was done earlier in the 20th century, almost a century ago, the period 
then around the 1940s, let's say, going back 100 years to the 1840s, 200 years, you know, 1840s, a little bit earlier than that is when Washington Irving wrote his story. And then going back from that, another 150 years or so, you got to the period that was sort of lost in myth and legend in upper New York state in the, in the kind of Catskill mountains and things like that. Uh, it was so remote and then there were legends that grew up. And so we have a similar experience now in Lake Forest. Uh, Lake Forest is about 150 years old. Uh, there are buildings that are that old, um, older than that in West Lake Forest even, but not so many, not so many buildings, you know, that, that go way back. But still, they, in East Lake Forest, there are a lot of houses, and, and on top of them being older, they were built to look even older than they were, uh, maybe to look like Tudor mansions or um, Scottish baronial mansions or um, Gothic buildings of, that, of, of various things. And in the late 18th century, um, the Gothic, the Romantic came into the sort of sublime and scary, came into the um, aesthetics of people liking that. And even our terrain with the deep ravines that you sort of come on unexpectedly and all of a sudden there's this deep hole and you mm -hmm. wonder what's going on. What's that? Why is that spooky place down there? So Lake Forest is a perfect setting for the psychological, parapsychological phenomenon of ghosts. I have never seen a ghost myself. I will tell you that, to be fair. However, I've seen people who I think and talked with people, interviewed people who I'm pretty sure think they saw a ghost. Interesting. So in effect, saw a ghost. Now, back 100 years ago, I think it was in 1921, um, one of the early people in town, um, Anna Farwell DeCoven, Mrs. Reginald DeCoven, her husband died around 1920. She was sure that she was communicating with her husband who had passed away. And she wrote a book about it. Um, she actually published a book about the paranormal. The difference from 100 years ago to now is we have a much stronger science sensibility. There's a much more of a sense of what is um, the scientific method and how it relates to establishing things that we can't see, but we know about. Um, and one of the key things is replicability. Can, if you think there's a star out there in the heavens, can you find that star again? Is it something that you can make a record of so that other people with a different telescope can go and look at the same thing you do? If it's about a new kind of a compound, is it something that somebody else can replicate? Um, can you write about it in a journal and give the steps so that someone else can do it? Um, if you discover a disease, you know, like uh, coronavirus, what are you, how do you scientifically um, go about replicating the, the process and um, then coming up with a solution to the problem? And as we know with the virus, we have at least three different solutions that were made to a vaccination for the virus. People doing different scientific things with that same thing. So the trouble with the paranormal is 
that you cannot on demand summon up a ghost. And that's the difference of 100 years ago to now. However, that doesn't mean that people don't think they've seen a ghost. But if I see a ghost and I tell you where to go and see that ghost and what time and what to do to get prepared, and you're all there, nothing may happen. Okay. <laughs> so he'll say, well, you know, Art Miller is really losing his grip, you know. Never. <laughs> He's sending people off to do things that just don't happen. Okay. Um, now, that all as said as background, there are some very... Um, there are, there are very there are reported phenomena about this. There was even a student at Lake Forest College a decade ago or so, a little more than a decade, maybe a dozen years ago, who did a, a paper, uh, a major paper. Uh, she was a senior about the ghost stories at Lake Forest College. And she, she checked out um, situations that people couldn't explain. There was no good explanation for it. And also people who'd actually, there's stories of them actually seeing something paranormal that they, yeah. and I had, I've had experience of someone coming to me um, and asking me when I was in my office about something that they had and what, what could I explain to them why this might've happened. They might've been pulling my leg, but I don't think because there wasn't a good history at the college at that time, it was pretty, there wasn't a lot of information about the early days. So these young women came. Oh, this would have been in the early 2000s. These young women came to my office, a couple of them, and said they had been out at night on the north campus near the... Um, Lantern? No, 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 no. <laughs> that's east. That's west campus, you know. <laughs> I'm just saying maybe they had a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, these were fairly straightforward young ladies. Okay, and they had okay, been okay. Out walking on the campus, um, and they had come around up by the uh, old 1892 Durand Institute building, and they said they thought they heard kind of old timey music, and then these soldiers came. A couple soldiers came marching around the side of the building, and they came up pretty close to them, and then they disappeared. So. They looked pretty scared about it. Now, they, they didn't know the story. However, after I told them the story, they went white. What had been on that property in 1859, the fall of 1859, before the Civil War, around the time of um, John Brown seizing at Harper's Ferry, the federal installation, trying to start a rebellion, they had been started, they had a, a program on the campus the first actual physical activity camp program on campus was drill training for the college students and the high school and the Lake Forest Academy students, drill training by the guy who founded the Zouaves in the Civil War, Els Elmer Ellsworth. Elmer Ellsworth was hired to come up on Saturdays and train them to be um, these uh, guys. Now, Ellsworth himself, was the first Union soldier to be killed in the Civil War. He was killed in Fredericksburg, Virginia, went into a house to get a, a Confederate flag taken down and got shot. He was the first guy to die. So these guys that drilled 
another one of these fellows that was one of the students actually went off to the Battle of, An of um, Shiloh, 1862 in Miss down Mississippi, Tennessee line down in there and uh, was killed there leading troops. Because these guys were leaders because they'd been trained in 1859 to march and do everything. So when the war actually got going, they got promoted right away because they knew a lot of military stuff ahead of time. They were like cadets. These kids saw somebody like that. And when I told them about these guys who had died early in the Civil War, they were pretty impressed. And then that there's this marching music, you know, that would have been playing and that they were marching around that, that North Campus up there in 1859. So that's one kind of ghost story. That's the one where I've seen people actually turn white, having um, found out what the story was at their place. Other people kind of knew more of their own story when I've been, talked to the people in houses. Uh, one place, there was a house that had belonged to a former mayor of Chicago, um, whose grandfather had passed away, um, actually had been assassinated in 1893. And they saw a ghost in their house, built later, but they saw a ghost in their 1920s house. They seemed to, it was a friendly ghost. It seemed to be nothing that bothered them. Another Casper? One, yeah. <laughs> like All right, just, okay. But I mean, not threatening, you know, not a ooh, scary ghost, but just a, a presence. Okay. Another presence that seemed to be of somebody who was troubled, you know, walking around up in the third floor of another house. Uh, turns out the people who owned the house, their son had gone off to World War I had been a, a pilot, uh, you know, in the, in the um, Rickenbacker's um, forces that fought the Red Baron and everything like that, but he had a lot of, he um, came home with PTSD um, and right. eventually committed suicide. And so this troubled ghost, they thought probably had something to do with that. Didn't bother them that the ghost was there. They understood, but it gave, their house had been built in the 19th century. They, they felt, oh my goodness, you know, this is a really interesting house. Everybody might not take that same attitude, but they did. The campus had lots of, of stories that went on after the 18, 1859 story. That was an earliest one. But they had other buildings that were built in around 1899, 1907, in that period. And then as late as 1964, buildings that were built in that, those periods, stories grew up about them unexplained experiences. Um, sometimes people would make jokes out of them, um, but other times, but there were people who really believed them. The buildings were built from about 1899 to 1908. This is in the period that the Lake Forest University was changing over from being a full-scale university, trying to have a graduate program and everything, to being a college. The University of Chicago's this backed by John D. Rockefeller, tried to get Lake Forest to join rather than compete with them. And John D. Rockefeller in the late 19th century had a pretty strong reputation of crushing people who didn't um, join him. You had a choice, come with him. It sounds a little bit like business, the big businesses today, you know. Yeah. So they decided they would not challenge the University of Chicago, they would stay independent but they would be a lower key, simpler kind of school, a college, a four-year college. 
and give up PhDs and having graduate. They also at that time had programs in the city, law school, medical school, dental school. They gave all that up. Uh, the medical school became Northwestern's medical school, I think, um, was a different period. Um, but then in that troubled area, it seems like some of those buildings ended up having, there were a bunch of buildings built that were in this new scale, and there were some problems with them. Now, one of them was the women's dormitory, Lois Hall on North Campus, beautiful 1899, red brick, uh, limestone trimmed, East Coast Women's College style dormitory, the best you could have. The way it worked was that in the Eastern schools too, if you went to Mount Holyoke or Smith, the dormitories, the girls went into the dormitories at five o'clock and they came out at eight o'clock in the morning. They were pretty much closed in at that time. If you were at a co-educational school, that meant there were no guys from five o'clock until eight o'clock. And um, that was pretty much the pattern. Uh, that, was, that went on until into the 60s, I would say, 1960s. So for a hundred years almost, that was the American liberal arts college methodology. The problem was is that these places didn't have moats around them. And uh, women figured out ways to, um, you know, sort of sneak out. Mm. Um, one of the sad results sometimes would be they would become pregnant. Now, in those days, if you became pregnant and you didn't have a husband, um, you were done. You were done at the college. Your family might be done with you. And that went on certainly through the 50s, uh, the 1950s. If people had a problem, uh, it caused tremendous difficulty and, and it might change the whole trajectory of a woman's life. This had gone on from early on up into the, in the 1910s, um, 20s, all the way through. And we have scrapbooks at the college of women who um, actually had to leave because of uh, their problems. So that dormitory has had reports of strange presences, the feeling that somebody's there, not just hearing sounds of creaking boards or something, but actually feeling like somebody's there. And one approach is to think that probably they're aware of, this, of, of these women's histories, um, subconsciously, intuitively aware of these women's histories and how difficult it was to be a woman at a small college in the first two thirds of the 20th century and that this experience was what was going on. So that was one of the things that went on there. Um, there, was a, there are men's dorms from around the same period on the middle campus. Those had um, probably different problems, but they, again, they've had some of the same kinds of people reporting sense of somebody being there, that sort of thing. Maybe hearing some noises, but more just a feeling that they're not alone in the space, that somebody's already there. And of course there, there were students in the college got a lot of, well, World War II, all the men got drafted and they got sent away. So there were just women on campus and um, they were even doing co-op work in factories up in Waukegan to keep the war effort going. They would study and work 
But by 1943, the president of the college had arranged for 200, no, 400 students, or I'm sorry, soldiers to come and be on campus to study, to get ready to be officers. Now that's what they told them at the beginning of 1943 when they shipped them in. What they were doing is they were stockpiling them for the 1944 invasions in the two theaters, the Atlanta in, in, in European theater, um, which ended up in D-Day 1944. Um, and then in the Pacific, which ended up at Leyte in the Philippines, Okinawa, and the guys were about to go to Japan and get decimated when the atomic bombs dropped. So these 400 guys got divided into two different groups. One group that went to Europe had normal casualties. The other group that went, the other 200 that went to the Pacific theater, they got chewed up. They just got really chewed up. They didn't all die, but they were casualties. Uh, it was very dramatic. And the sense that in 1943, there were some guys there living just like student lives, which they'd been drafted out of colleges and stuff. The intramural basketball team that won uh, that early winter when they were playing um, had nine guys on it. Um, within 18 months, at least three of those guys were dead of those nine. Another three or four were wounded. One was never heard of or something missing. But I mean, they were just chewed up all the heck, you know. Um, it's an amazing, amazing experience. They lived there, they were in bliss, they were having a good time. They thought they were studying um, things that they were gonna use to become officers. The war was gonna drag on forever and they were gonna rise up. Well, they rose up, you know, at Omaha Beach, <laughs> took that bluff. Those guys just got hammered, you know? And it was just as bad in Okinawa, the, the soldiers wouldn't give up. They wouldn't surrender. They only would, they would die in their pillboxes. And the guys had to take them out personally, you know, going in and killing them. This left an atmosphere in um, the, the 1907-1908 dorms, Blackstone and Harlan. People feel a presence of, of figures. And these would have been these young people who were kind of misled, you know, by the government about what was going on. And then they got their orders and boom, they were on their way. They were um, pushed into these monster invasions. They had some training, but training doesn't matter if it's, you know, rock breaks scissors, you know? I mean, if you're up against a cannon and you got a rifle, uh, you gotta be lucky. And there were some, we still see, there are 90 some year old guys that are lucky that made it through on, on Omaha Beach and stuff like that, or in the Philippines or, or at Honolulu after Pearl Harbor. But I mean, there's very few and they consider themselves very lucky. So those spirits are on the campus. Now the one, the building I was gonna mention that was more recent was really a sad story. There was a, the, the, the college library's uh, older part, which is the Eastern part of the building um, was built in 1963, 64, 65. In about 1964, they were getting ready to build, they had left room for an elevator shaft. They were building the elevator shaft. And 
across the street from this was a bunch of faculty housing. And a little kid got out and left home, walked across the street, walked onto the site, went upstairs, and then fell down that elevator shaft. It was really, it was a, just terrible for the whole community. I mean, it was just tore everybody apart. The college lost the little girl, lost the family. It was a favorite professor, who, an English professor whose daughter it was. They just couldn't live there anymore. Um, they moved, you know, to start over. Um, and it was just a terrible, terrible experience. Now the building got built. It opened partially in late 1964. Uh, by 1965, the library part upstairs opened um, with the elevator. The elevator never really worked well. It, um, it had its own personality. It would stop. It would scare people. It would jerk around. They had maintenance people, maintenance people. Then in 2004, 2002 to 2004, they redid the building again. They put in a completely new elevator and it would stop and start. Come on now. <laughs> and it never really was, a, you know, just a simple, straightforward elevator. Now, I don't know how it is now because I haven't been around for a while. When, when we had these guys on campus, that this guy come with his machine that could sense if there were extrasensory things and all. Yeah. He went up in the library with a bunch of people and he was getting his vibes from his gizmo, which, you know. Who did, he see, did he see a really big marshmallow guy? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, continue, continue. Yeah, yeah. But he, um, his gizmo seemed to record the presence of something. And he went to a few other places on campus over by where those kids had seen that soldier and stuff. And he would pick up vibes. Now, scientific? No, not scientific. What it has to do with psychology and people having a sense of things, but they even when they don't know the stories of these things, they would come forward with these accounts of experiences that they couldn't explain. And then they would get the stories told to them as to who lived there or what had happened there or something. And then they would be pretty much surprised. So as I say, a student did an account and there is a paper at the college um, that she did about um, the ghosts and hauntings on the campus. And this is similar experiences in houses in town and nobody's alarmed about them. As you can imagine, a lot of Lake Forest families had larger than life stories. Larger than life things happened to them also, ups and downs. Um, the they early entrepreneurs, the comings and goings, the Chicago fire burned out people's businesses and all. So lots of things went on in Lake Forest and our, you know, some of those buildings had these people with their tremendous experiences um, that might still reverberate inside those buildings. We don't know. But uh, it makes for interesting background. And for this time of year, when we have on the one hand, Halloween, 
On the other hand, we have the Day of the Dead, which is the Hispanic version of it. And then the church vision, which is, you know, All Saints Day on November 1st, um, you know, remembering all of this is an interesting phenomenon and isn't to be entirely discounted to say that it's not. How do we know? It just sounds like a lot of the stories happen at the college. And Which has got some of the most archaic-looking buildings. Okay, they're built in goth. They're built in kind of Tudor Gothic style or earlier. Way they look way older than they really are, and that I think contributed to it too. Um, and it's one of the and it's a hundred over hundred and fifty years old, hundred sixty years old or so, and it has um, a long time to, to develop legends stories and that sort of thing so i think a lot of the stories might have happened around 2 a.m yeah <laughs> people have chemical experiences of chemical experience. no that doesn't happen <laughs> uh, well art thank you for helping with my sleep tonight yeah okay <laughs> how old is your house uh, I want to say it's the 70s. It's not that old, but, uh, oh, you 1870s. You never know. <laughs> Better call Ghostbusters. Thanks for listening to the North Shore Podcast. <laughs> Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Let us know what you'd like to hear about in the upcoming shows. Again, I'm Pete and can be reached at Pete at NorthShorePodcast.com. The link will be in the podcast notes. On behalf of my co-host, Arthur Miller, we thank you for listening. Art class is now over. Cue the ghosts.